Volume Three, Chapter Nine of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Three, Chapter Nine, Mrs. Peck's Communication. Mrs. Peck was surprised and a little disconcerted when, on the evening of the day on which she had so nearly confided her secret to Elsie, Mr. Brandon walked into her lodgings unannounced, but she concealed her chagrin with her usual duplicity. Though she was desirous of further communication with Elsie, she preferred it to be with herself, and not through a person who had spoken so uncivilly to her. "'You did not think it was worth while for me to give Miss Melville and you my address,' "'But I see that you are making use of it without delay,' said she. "'Yes, I am, for I want to know if I cannot transact the business which I interrupted,' said Brandon. "'You? No, certainly not. I only deal with principles. "'Miss Alice Melville empowers me to act for her in this manner, "'and this letter from her to me should satisfy you of that. "'It will not do for a girl to treat personally with a woman who compromises her by her company.' "'Oh, is that it?' said Mrs. Peck, who disliked the exchange of a simple young girl for a man of the world in the bargain she wished to make. "'Well, if I must deal with you, what do you offer?' "'If you can give the inheritance of Cross Hall to Jane and Alice Melville, a thousand pounds,' said Brandon. "'Say two thousand, said Mrs. Peck. "'I will not take less than that. "'Are you a sweetheart of that girl's, or of her sister's? "'If you are, you can easily see that Cross Hall is worth far more than that.' "'I do not think you can give information that will be worth the money I offer,' said Brandon. "'Even supposing you were married before your irregular marriage with Mr. Hogarth, you will have difficulty in proving that marriage, and after so many years spent in New South Wales and Victoria under another name, it will be almost impossible to prove your identity.' "'I can prove that,' said Mrs. Peck, taking out of her black bag several letters of old date, generally with remittances, signed H. Hogarth. There had been an annuity paid regularly after she had gone to Australia, but the last payment had been of a large sum, fifteen hundred pounds, which she had accepted in lieu of all future annual remittances, and that had been sent more than thirteen years before. I was a fool and an idiot to take the money, for it went as fast as my money always did, but Peck wanted to start in the public line, and persuaded me to ask for that sum and then in a year and a half it was all gone, and I had no annuity to fall back on, said Mrs. Peck. Were you married to Peck or to Mrs. Phillips's father? asked Brandon. No, not exactly married. I kept out of bigamy. I always kept that hold on Cross Hall. I would not marry anyone right out, you know. He might have had a divorce from you, said Brandon. If he had known, perhaps he might, but nobody made it none of their business to tell him, and I said nothing about it. "'It is rather difficult to tell when you are speaking the truth, and when you are not,' said Brandon. "'But I believe that you really are Elizabeth Ormistown, and I believe also that Francis Hogarth is not the son of Old Cross Hall, as you call him. But I fear you cannot prove it, and without that the information is of no use to us, and worth no money. "'If I can prove it, how much is it worth?' "'How much have you had already on the strength of it? You are first handsomely paid for the lie, and now you want to be bribed into telling the truth.' I myself think one thousand pounds far too much, for if the case were taken to court, there would be very heavy law expenses before possession could be obtained. I offer, on Miss Melville's behalf, a thousand whenever they get the property. Far too little. 
I'll not speak a word for the chance of a sum like that. I must have two thousand pounds. What is one thousand pounds? Why, at your years it would buy you a very handsome annuity, or you could lend it out at interest and get ten per cent for it, and have the principal to leave to any one you liked. Or you might start in business with such a capital. Many handsome fortunes have been made in Melbourne on a smaller beginning, but if you think it insufficient I can go away. My clients are not so very anxious about the property as to accede to such a demand as yours, and Francis Hogarth may be left in peaceable possession of the estate, said Brandon, coolly. He must not be left with it. I must not let him sit there in the place he ain't got no rights to, after the way he has served me, said Mrs. Peck. I believe it is more a piece of spite than anything else, said Brandon. Well, here is the agreement for the payment of a thousand pounds. Will you accept of that, or shall I go? You are too sharp for with me, a great deal too sharp on a poor old woman like me. But I'll take your offer in the meantime. Miss Melville said I was to trust to her honour to pay me as much as it is worth, and if she finds out as it's worth more, I'll expect she'll keep that saying of hers in mind, and act accordingly. Mrs. Peck signed the paper, and Brandon signed it also, as agent for Jane and Alice Melville. Now, for your part of the bargain, Mrs. Peck, and stick to the truth if you can. I know that your imagination is apt to run away with you, but here it will be a disadvantage to have any flights of fancy, said Brandon. Mrs. Peck had, for more than a week, thought of nothing but this disclosure of her past life, and now that the opportunity had arrived, she really enjoyed telling it as much as if it had been wholly fictitious. It was quite as romantic as any of her fabrications, and it was a subject on which her lips had been sealed for thirty-four years, except to give vent to some occasional allusions to Peck. It was interesting in itself, it was damaging to Frances, and it was likely to be lucrative to herself, in addition to the thousand pounds which their agent offered on their behalf. She had thought a good deal over the story she had to tell, and gave a more consecutive and consistent narrative than was usual with her, for she felt the importance of making it appear to be a perfectly true story. "'Well,' said she, "'it's an old story and a queer one, but I do keep it in mind, and I will tell you the truth. For, as you say, it is what will answer us both best. My name, as you know, was Elizabeth Ormistown, and I was born in the next county to Shire, where Cross Hall is. I have never seen Cross Hall myself, but I have heard of it. We had seen better days, for my father was a small shopkeeper, and my mother was a schoolmaster's daughter, but my father was the simple man, who is the beggar's brother, and he was caution or security, as they call it here, for a brother of his own, for two hundred pounds, and lost it, and then we all went downhill together. Mother was always very furious at him for his being such a fool, and even on his deathbed she never forgave him for bringing her down so low. She was very greedy of money, was mother, and never forgot any ill she had done her. We was living in the country very poor, for I could not bear to go to service among folk that knew about us, when I fell in with a young man as I liked better than most. But as he was poor as a rat, and only a working joiner, mother would have nothing to say to him, and she made up her mind to take me to Edinburgh, where she lived with a cousin, and I was to go to service. I had wanted to go before, but it was all mother's pride as kept me at home. I wanted to be well-dressed, as all girls do, and I liked to be seen and to be talked to. I had grown up handsome enough. You have seen Mrs. Phillips. She is the very moral of what I was, and I didn't like to be always wearing old things. And mother, she wanted Jamie Stevenson driven out of my head, so she made no objections to my going to a house where they took lodgers, mostly young men, in for the college. 
The work was hard, and the wages no great matter, but the chance was worth twice as much as the wages, for the lads was free-handed, particular if you would stand any daffing, as we called it then. Harry Hogarth was there the second winter I was in Edinburgh, and though he was not like to have Cross Hall then, for he had two brothers older than him, he was just as free of his money as if he was a young lard. He had been in Paris before that, but his father had grumbled at his spending so much there, and said he must hold with Edinburgh for the future, and Harry was maybe trying to show the old man that as much might go in old Ricky as in France. He was said to be the cleverest of the family, and the old man was fond of him, and proud of him too, but he was very hard to part with the gear. Harry was my favourite of all the lads in the house, for he had most fun about him, and was the softest-hearted too. The old lord changed his mind in the middle of the winter. I mind well his coming to our place one day, and he gave me a very sour look when I opened the door, as if my cap and my clothes was too good for my station, and my looks too, maybe. But he said that Harry had better go to Paris, as his heart was set on it, and he gave Harry a sum of money that made him think his father was not long for this world, though he looked all right. So he behooved to have a splore, as they call it. He entertained all his friends at a hotel to supper, where they had a night of it, drinking and singing and laughing, to bid him farewell. When he came back it was grew daylight, and I was up to my work, and when he went past me he saw me crying, as he thought, for grief at the thought of his going away. And really I was sorry, for I liked him the best of the lot, but my greeting was more with the thought of his giving me something handsome at parting than that he should take it up so serious. But he in his conceit thought I was breaking my heart for the love of him, and he tried to dry my tears. So instead of going away that day he stopped another week, and then he went to Paris. I said I would go with him, and he would refuse me nothing. So we went in separate ships, and met together in Paris, and I stopped with him at his lodgings, as is common enough in that queer town, and well I liked the place, and the sights, and the presents he gave me, and the clothes I had to put on, and he was good enough to me, though he laughed at me whiles, and many a day he called me greedy, but I got what I wanted out of him. Well, we had been three months in Paris when he got word that his eldest brother had broke his neck when he was hunting, and that his father had taken the news so sore to heart that he was ill and not like to recover, so Harry had to go home with all speed. I would not stop in France without him, so we both came back again, and Harry went to Cross Hall and me to my mother's. I was not over-willing to go to her, for I knew how angry she would be at me, but Harry said it was the best place for me in the meantime, and he promised to send me money so that I would be no burden. As I dreaded, my mother was terrible angry at me, but when I told her how soft Harry was, she thought he might be brought to marry me, and she set her heart on managing that by hook or by cook. Her contrivance was that I should pretend to be very ill, and send for him to bid me good-bye, and then she would manage the rest. So by her advice I took to my bed and coughed very bad, and she made my cheeks look deadly white, and my lips too, and when Harry came he was shocked to see me. His father was dead by this time, as well as his eldest brother, so his heart was especially soft, and he looked sore and distressed at my being in such a bad way. "'Oh, Bessie,' says he, "'what can I do for you? What can I get for you?' "'Deed, it's not much that she wants now in this world. I'm thinking we'll lose her soon,' said Mother. "'No, no,' says Harry eagerly. "'Let me feel your pulse, Bessie,' says he. Mother forgot about his being a doctor, and did not like his going about in such a skilful way, but I was roused and excited myself that my pulse was at a gallop. "'Quick but strong,' says he, not the least like death. "'Cheer up, Bessie,' said he. "'It's just a bad turn you've got, a chill, perhaps, but you'll very soon get over it. 
You ought to know that you're safe against fever at the present time. It's on her mind, said Mother. It's her mind as is so disturbed. She eats nothing, and she sleeps none for coughing, and takes such spasms at the heart. I know she'll never get better, and she thinks just the same. And for my part, I'd rather have laid her head in the grave than let her live to be such a disgrace to us all. To think of such a thing happening to a daughter of mine, and all through you. Well, Mrs. Ormistown, it is a pity, but it was quite as much her doing as mine, and maybe a little more, says he, looking at me with a half-laugh. But I only sighed and groaned, and would not speak to him. I'm sure, Bessie, when we were in Paris, says he, you did not take it much to heart, and I'll do what I can to make you comfortable. Don't mock us with talking about comfort, said Mother, sternly. If Bessie did not feel her sin and her shame when she was in that sink of iniquity with you, I trust I have been able to convince her of her position since she returned to me. Indeed, Harry, says I, morning, noon, and night, Mother is preaching to me, and I really wish I was dead to have a little quiet. Tut-tut, says he, if you were really ill, you would not speak so briskly about dying. And he tried to soothe me down, but I kept very sulky. But yet when he went away he did not believe there was much the matter with me. "'We must make you really ill,' says my mother, when he was gone. So she got some stuff for me to take, and I swallowed it, and I really did think as I was dying. I never felt as bad before or since, and even mother was frightened that she had made it too strong. But she sent for Harry, and he was frightened too. She said that I had poisoned myself, and was going to die with the scorn of every one. "'Oh, if you would but acknowledge yourself her husband, it would be enough, quite enough, to let her die with her mind easy and her name cleared,' says Mother to him. Harry had no notion I took things so serious, but he supposed that my mother had driven me to desperation by her reproaches, so he said he would do as she wished, and Mother fetched Violent Strahan, our cousin, and a woman called Wilson, from next door to be witnesses, and he said he was my husband, and I said I was his wife in their presence. Harry thought that was enough, but Mother wanted to make it surer still, for she wrote it out, and we all signed it, and here it is. Then Mrs. Peck drew out this document from her bundle of papers. This is a marriage in Scotland. Without the paper it was a marriage, but Mother liked to see things in black and white. Harry never could get out of it, though he said afterwards that he did not know what he was about when he signed it. Of course, after Mother had carried her point I was allowed to get well, but slowly, for the stuff had really half-poisoned me. Harry was in London with his brother when my boy Frank was born, but he came to me as soon as he could, and by ill luck it happened that the very day he came my old sweetheart Jamie Stevenson was paying me a visit, and Harry heard something that was not meant for him, and off he set without seeing me or the child either. He sent me a letter, saying I had cheated him first and last, and he would never look at me again. "'Then your boy was not Henry Hogarth's son,' said Brandon eagerly, who thought he had got hold of the important part of the story. "'But this man Stevenson's? "'You're quite out in your guesses, Mr. Brandon, for as clever as you think yourself, it does not concern my story a bit. But I will say this, that my Frank was Harry's own son.' "'Then were you married in this irregular way to Jamie Stevenson in the first place?' said Brandon, who saw no prospect of proving the desired non-cousinship. "'No, I wasn't. But Jamie was doing better in the world then, and he was saying, thinking that I wasn't married, that for all that had come and gone, if the father would provide for the barn any way handsome, he'd marry me yet, and I did not see much good in being the wife of a gentleman that would always be ashamed of me, and never bringing me forward. Mother thought he would do that, but I knew the man better by this time. So I was telling Jamie that if I had only thought he'd have made me so good an offer, I'd never have followed Mother's counsel, 
but have taken him that I like twice as well as Harry, and, maybe, it would have been better for me if Harry had not been so soft and mother so positive. This was what Harry Hogarth heard that angered him so terribly, and he said I had cheated him. He sent me money, but he vowed he would never look me in the face again. Well, when Frank was about fourteen months old, Harry's other brother died. There was an awful mortality in the family at that time, three within two years, and then he came in for the property. Mother was in an awful passion at my having had anything to say to Jamie, and losing hold on my rich husband through my stupidity. But I was his wife, and must be provided for at any rate. So he wanted to make terms with me, and proposed that I should go out of the country altogether, to Sydney, where he would give me a decent maintenance for myself and the child. Mother at first would not listen to this, and neither would I, but I wanted to go to law for my rights. But when he said he would expose everything about the marriage if we did, we gave in, and agreed to go to the ends of the earth to please him. And after we had made up our minds to it, we rather liked the notion of getting out of Scotland. He would not trust us going unless he saw us off, so he appointed to meet in London, where the ship was to sail from, and he would arrange all things for our going off quiet and comfortable, and then we was to part for ever. Mother and me and Frank went to London, and took lodgings in a very crowded lodging-house, full of people just ready to sail for America or some other place, here to-day and away to-morrow, and there Frank fell ill. He had looked a strong enough child, but I think the stuff Mother gave me had hurt him, for he had every now and then bad convulsion fits. Being used to them, we did not take much notice of them, but now, when it was of such moment to us that the child should be alive, and that his father should see him, then, by ill luck, just an hour before the appointed time for our meeting, Frank took a worse fit than ever, and died in my arms. I was very vexed indeed, and sorry, for I liked the little child, and he was a very pretty little fellow, but mother was furious. "'It's a good hundred a year out of our pocket,' said she. "'If he had only lived to get on board, we need never have told Cross Hall about his dying afterwards, and he looked the picture of health only yesterday. I wish someone would lend us a child.' Maybe the woman in the next room will. He never saw it, and he'd not know the difference between one child and another. So mother went into the next room. It was let to a woman with one child, and she was to sail for America the next day to join her husband, who had written for her. She seemed to be poor, and mother had no doubt that for a pound or so she would lend us the child. But when she went into the room the mother was out, and the child was lying on the bed asleep. Mother was very quick and clever. Our boy was so changed with the convulsions that I would never have known him again, and this boy was much the same size and age, and not very unlike him, so she slipped off the child's nightgown and put poor Frank's clothes on it, and dressed my dead child in the nightgown she took off, and put it on the bed. She would not give me time to cry, but got into a hackney-coach and rode off to where we were to meet Harry. She told me afterwards that she meant to take back the woman her child, if possible, but in case of not being able to do it, she got all our luggage, which was ready-packed, into the hackney coach, and paid the woman of the house all we owed her. When I saw Harry again he looked changed, far graver and duller. I was full of sorrow about Frank, and I cried sore when I saw his father. But then he thought I only cried, out of cunning, to get something more out of him. Harry took the child in his arms and looked at it all over. "'Poor thing,' says he, "'poor thing,' and I saw a tear-drop on that stranger's face. My own boy— his own boy, he had never touched, and never looked at. I was jealous and fierce at both of them, in my grief and my rage, but mother was pleased to see him so taken up with the child, for she thought it would be all the better for us. 
"'Well,' says he, "'are you ready to go on board this afternoon? "'For the ship will get off to-night with the tide, "'and I will see you all right.' "'Yes,' says Mother, "'we are all ready, "'but we want to know what allowance you are willing to make. "'You must take into consideration that we are banished "'and have to leave everybody we know. "'What will you allow for Elizabeth, "'and what for little Frank?' "'I think,' said Harry, speaking slow, "'that I will arrange differently about the child. "'As he is my son, "'I think he would be better in other hands than yours.' "'Will you leave the boy with me?' I was just on the point of saying that it was none of mine, nor of his neither, but Mother saw her own interest in this, as she did in most things, and so says she, "'It's cruel to part Elizabeth from her child, very cruel. Will you, that has treated her so bad, be good to the boy? Do you mean to acknowledge him?' Harry spoke slow again. "'I don't know if I will be good to him, but I will try. I will put him in as good hands as I can, educate him, and acknowledge him.' if he deserves it, and I fear if you bring him up he is not likely to do so. "'It is for the child's own good, Bessie,' said Mother eagerly. "'You must sacrifice your own feeling and leave him with his father, if he promises so fair. How are we like to get him educated where we are going? It is very hard on you, Bessie,' said Mother coaxingly. I stood sulky, not knowing what to do or what to say. "'And so Mr. Hogarth will no doubt consider the hardship of your case, and make it up in some other way to you.' mother went on to say. Henry looked at my mother very sharp, and then he looked at me. Though he did not believe in my tears, he did not like to see them, for they reminded him of how I had served him before. "'He is quite innocent now, poor boy, quite innocent,' said Henry. "'We must keep him so if we can.' And he offered as much to me for my life as we had expected him to give for me and the child too, and it was so tempting that we closed with it at once, for it cost me nothing to part with a baby as was not my own.' I had a mind to tell him, but then I knew how enraged he would have been at my trying it on with him. Another cheat would have driven him wild, so I bade him good-bye and the child too. He took us on board and we sailed that night, and I never saw him or the child again. He sent me money regular till I asked him for the fifteen hundred pounds and signed a quittance for the annuity like a fool, as I told you. End of Volume 3, Chapter 9